Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. First, some drug treatment facilities have moved their services over to computer screens, but people in recovery need different things during a pandemic. On the one hand... Now that all the restaurants are closed, the parties are over. These past few weeks, I've seen a great uptick in my recovery. And on the other... It goes against everything that we're telling them. We tell people, don't use alone. And you'll meet the founder of a fashion design company who's delivering hundreds of masks around our state. Plus, what songs are hospitals using to celebrate the release of a COVID-19 patient? Don't Stop Believing means more than just the individual patient. As a society, let's still believe in each other. Let's still be there for each other. We can all come out stronger. And how an eight-year-old from Stafford started her own live stream about rocks. Today, we actually compared raw rocks to polished rocks. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's us in the time of coronavirus. After the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. Helpers helping helpers. That's a string you can follow throughout today's show. Now, I've been thinking a lot lately about people who are in recovery. These are really stressful times. And when some people are stressed out, they drink, they do drugs. For people who've decided to confront their addictions and stop using, what's it like now that the world is shut down and they're isolated? Is it harder to keep away from the substance they used to use? Is it easier? Something in between? To help me understand, I talked with folks at Project Courage, a drug treatment center in Old Saybrook, Connecticut. They connected me with Ray, not his real name, a 23-year-old who's been in their program since January, just two months before the world twisted up around COVID-19. I asked him why he sought help in the first place. Um, My main reason I sought recovery was for alcohol abuse. I'm a 20-something-year-old kid, and... You know, I was in in college for a little while and I kind of lost my way. And a large part of that was due to my alcohol abuse. And so the end of last year, six months ago or so, I decided I really wasn't in, you know, a spot I wanted to be. I wasn't motivated to do my schoolwork. I wasn't feeling my obligations physically, I was letting myself go. And a lot of that was just because I was, I was abusing alcohol. How much were you drinking? There would be weeks, you know, consistently every day, wake up till the night. But then there'd be other days where I'd be fine, but I'd find myself falling back into a rut where I couldn't get out of mentally or just physically, I couldn't stop myself. Alcohol is so tricky. It's so embedded in our culture. I guess I'm curious to know, how did you know that you'd gone too far? Um, I think it was really my parents that really you know, made me open my eyes and look back and say, hey, you really should take a hard look at yourself. You probably don't like where you're at right now. And we can see that, you know, we love you and we care about you. And we know that you're struggling and we can be there to help and we can support you. 
So when this shift happened and you had to figure out, all right, how do I get help? Where do I go to get help? How did, how did that happen? My parents actually had found Project Courage because it's in my hometown, actually. So Project Courage is about a five-minute drive from my house, and uh, they were able to get in contact with Project Courage and find the program that best fit for my recovery needs. Will you tell me about what the programming, at least up until the pandemic, what that programming was like? Right. So initially, there's a intake interview with the Project Courage team clinician and another person there, and they kind of just run you through what led you here, what steps, how you're feeling right now. From there, they're able to decipher how best to place you, whether it's in an intensive uh, care where you're there five days a week for eight hours, or maybe you're there for three days a week, eight hours a day, or in another sense, you're checking in with these different recovery coaches and clinicians out in your everyday life and over the phone, that intake kind of decides where you fall. And from there, I chose the RSS route, which is kind of like a recovery coach route. And um, my recovery coach is awesome. He's the best. And I check in with him about at the start, it was four days a week. In person or? Yeah, I'd meet with him in person four days a week, you know, at a coffee shop or we'd go get a bite to eat, we'd go for a hike. And, you know, I just kind of, you know, open up to him and tell him how I'm feeling. And the recovery coach is there. They're your cheerleader. They're your brick wall. They're there to support you no matter what and what you're dealing with. And dealing with finding recovery, it's a tough thing. Now, when you mentioned your recovery coach, it was the first time since we started talking that I saw you smile. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now tell me, what, what is it about him? Um, even if I wasn't in this setting, we would be like best friends in a way. He, he's, he understands what I'm going through. And knowing that he has been there and done that puts me at ease with, I'm not the only one going through this. It's never easy to quit something that you're addicted to. And now is a really difficult time. How do you think going through a pandemic in recovery has challenged you or has it not challenged you? One way it's challenged me is initially back in January before the pandemic occurred, I sort of had a routine. I would meet with my recovery coach. I would meet with my a therapist, my clinician, weekly, once a week. And this was all face-to-face interactions. And I kind of created that routine. And then once the pandemic happened and social distancing was put in place, that broke my routine. So I did struggle for a bit once that routine was broken. But since over the past month to two months, one thing that recovery in the pandemic has actually benefited me is this new routine I have. A big part of my alcohol abuse was the social aspect of alcohol in our society. Alcohol is so, you know, almost encouraged at everywhere you look, especially in my, at my age group. So 
now that all the restaurants are closed, the bars are closed, the parties are over. So now this has brought me back home where I can be home. I go to work every day. I call my recovery coach weekly. I call my clinician, my therapist weekly. I go to these yoga and fitness classes weekly. And it's these past few weeks, I've seen a great uptick in my recovery, even with the crisis that's going on. So on the flip side, when not that the world will just open up one day and everybody can go out to restaurants and bars and all these social things that eventually you'll be faced to deal with. But is there preparation now for when that happens? Or are you sort of sitting with this stillness that you've been allotted because the, the pandemic has you enclosed in your house? Right. I mean, this pandemic is kind of a unique situation where there's never been a better time for anybody to kind of reset, reevaluate, and kind of, you know, keep going for that when everything opens back up and the world goes back up. You've found ways and avenues that cut your addiction and, you know, boost your recovery, even when the world opens back up. And I think through Project Courage and the routine I've made with my family and the people that care me, I've found these different tips and ways that I can keep going on, you know, my way up for towards recovery. How are the virtual meetings? Are they just as powerful and important? Are they something else entirely? So initially, I didn't like the idea at all. I liked going every week to my clinician and I enjoyed that time. I'd sit in her office at Project Courage for an hour every Monday or Tuesday. I liked that. With my recovery coach, same thing. We would meet at coffee places. We had started going to the gym for our weekly meetings and I enjoyed that. And then once we were not able to do the face-to-face, I thought, oh my gosh, how is this going to how is this going to affect me? So initially the telehealth and things, I didn't feel as if they were as impactful. I didn't feel like I was connecting as much with my recovery coach or my clinician. But by the second or third time I was doing these, I I kind of flipped the switch. I decided that my recovery isn't going to halt for anybody. This pandemic isn't going to halt for anybody. It's not just going to pause for me to get better. You know, so I should put stock in these virtual interviews and these virtual in, in these meetings. So, you know, I haven't seen my recovery coach in a month face to face, unfortunately, but we still call weekly and it's almost like we're face to face. It doesn't really phase me anymore. It's just as impactful. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you want to make sure that you say? With all the uncertainty that's going around in the world, I mean, it doesn't mean you have to stop doing what you're doing before to better yourself. Even if you weren't in a recovery situation, it's not, you know, the world isn't just going to stop for you. You got to keep growing and getting better every day. So for me, it's battling the recovery and, going day to day, knowing that I can do better than yesterday. That was Ray, who's in recovery for his addiction to alcohol. 
In that interview, he talked about how much his recovery coach meant to him. Well, that coach's name is Antonio Piscatello, and he's also in recovery after six years of using heroin. I called him up, and he told me that a big part of what keeps him sober is helping other people in their recoveries. You talk to people in recovery, and, and a lot of their biggest thing in staying sober and helping the recovery is, you know, it's an AA kind of term, it's a helping the next alcoholic addict. For a lot of people, that works, and for me, that's, that's what's helped me the most. Part of my program is helping other people. That's what helps keep me sober on a day-to-day basis. Here we are in 2020, and there's a pandemic. And one thing I've been thinking is, like, this is either a really, really terrible time to be in recovery, or this might be a great time to be in recovery. How is it for you, at least? And what have you been seeing? Uh, For me so far with my clients, personally, it has been going, it has been going all right. One of the biggest enemies to any alcoholic or addict is like isolation. So, you know, with my clients right now, it's like we're still interacting with them, whether it be in person or over telehealth, we're still always in contact with them. You know, where, where it gets really tricky is the people that are new to recovery and they're trying to get sober. Say they sold their laptop, their phone. I mean, there's no way to go to a meeting. So it's that group of people that are, I think, really struggling the most right now. When I interviewed Ray, the first time that I saw him smile during the whole interview was when you got brought up. And so I wonder, why do you think that is? Like, what what makes you effective and make someone like him smile? I think my approach to recovery and everything like that is, um, and I think the biggest thing that everyone wants is connection. You know, besides the fact that he's he is a good person and I, I enjoy spending time with him, it's I think that's what we're all desperately craving a little bit is is a little bit of connection and like someone to talk to and but most of all someone to listen. And you know, I'm not someone I'm not a probation officer, you know what I mean? It's I'm not telling you what to do. It's I'm here to listen and I'm here to try to guide you in like a good direction. A lot of times it it does cause risks with some people, but it does cultivate these really, really powerful and good relationships with people that they're able to like, for some people, it's the first like healthy friendship they have, you know, in their life, you know, since they start using or whatever. So that that's the way I kind of try to approach it. And I think it's an effective way just to get people start feeling comfortable with like being around another person or being around themselves. What do you think most people don't understand about addiction? From what I thought about addiction when I was young, before I I identified as an addict, it was very much the conventional under a bridge, homeless, crack heroin addict, you know, that was my idea of addiction. But I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, now are, you know, they have a lot of people in their families or friends or people they know that are addicted to something. And I think people are are starting to understand a lot more, but it's, you know, no fault to their own to not understand. It's, I think just everyone just has certain stereotypes about it and that's for everyone to process in their own way. How does somebody know that they're addicted to something? I mean, like I have a beer, I have a whiskey. I've never tried any of what I consider at least to be the harder drugs, although that could be, (laughs) you could definitely argue that alcohol is just as hard a drug as anything. Um, But how does somebody know okay, I am beyond the pale here. I need help. Or even if they don't think they need help, how do they know that they're an addict? 
the one thing I never, I never do. And I've never done is I never tell someone they're an alcoholic or they're not. That's something they need to figure out on their own. And if they don't figure it out on their own, they'll never have the desire to stop. For myself, it was a feeling of real hopelessness and real, I can't do anything else. This is all I can do. This is all like I am. And it was a desire to try to be something better than I was. That was, that was for me kind of when I thought like, you know, this, this isn't who I am. I need to change something, but you know, it's everyone's own personal journey and no, no story is exactly the same. And a lot of people have different feelings, but a lot of those feelings are very similar, just hopelessness, helplessness, and just kind of defeat. So for those who are listening to this and they're thinking about getting help and we are in the middle of a pandemic. Actually, I don't know if we're in the middle. I don't know if we're in the beginning. I don't know where we are in this pandemic. But for those who are at home thinking, maybe now's the right time to get help, what would you say to them? I would say it's, it's, it's always the right time to get help. It doesn't, it doesn't matter during a pandemic or not. It's, you know, we could find a million excuses. If you're ready to stop, there's people that are there to listen and there to help you. And it really comes down to that. It's, you know, when you're ready to stop, you're going to take the actions you need to reach out and make that next call to someone that can put you in a position to change yourself. For people who are in recovery, and I know you can't speak for everybody, but is the general understanding that if you were addicted to one substance, then you should stay away from all of them? And are there like gray areas? Like I see you're drinking something out of a coffee cup. (laughs) You know, is there caffeine in there? Caffeine's a drug, you know, like... (laughs) How, in general, do people sort of define what substances they can or should or shouldn't put back into their bodies as they're in recovery, which is hopefully for the rest of their lives? Yeah, it's a very gray area. And it's really up to the person to decide. For me, caffeine, I I have to have my caffeine. But as far as like other things, I can't personally do it or I get back into the swing of things. You know, as far as other people, there, there are plenty of people that are able to moderate their use or use other substances. The cool thing about Project Courage is that we're with you for that step of the journey. And if that idea or that, that step does not work, we're there to figure out the next step to do. That was like part of the reason I wanted to get on. Just as it's, just, it's a very different idea of like approach to recovery. But for me, yeah, it's very black and white for me with those. Except for caffeine. Except for Captain. That's the the gray area right there. (laughs) That was Antonio Piscatello. He's been sober for three years and he lives in New Haven. He's a coach at Project Courage in Old Saybrook and you can see what they do and how they do it at projectcourageworks.com. Next up, people who are addicted to drugs need support now more than ever, especially those who are most at risk in our cities. Helping them is a challenge in normal times, but with social distancing and lack of protective gear, how are organizations getting creative to reach the folks who need help most? Find out next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. That's after the break. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, helpers helping helpers. Now, the news about drug use in our state and in our capital city, is not good. According to the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, in 2019, exactly 1,200 people died of drug overdoses in Connecticut, a 20% increase from the prior year. The medical examiner said this is the first time our state has seen this many deaths related to overdose. 
And Hartford, where I live and work, had the most overdose deaths in the whole state. 133 human beings. Gone. One organization that's on the ground every day doing the hard work around addiction recovery is the Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition. They run a syringe exchange program, HIV testing and prevention education, drug treatment access and referrals, safer sex kits, and open access. Open stands for overdose prevention, education, and naloxone access. In fact, it was through that program where I met their executive director, Mark Jenkins, about a year ago. My fiancé and I knew people who were in addiction recovery, and we wanted to make sure we knew how to use Narcan, the life-saving opioid and fentanyl medication. Mark has run the coalition since March of 2014, so he has seen a lot. And I wanted to know what effect the virus might have on those who use drugs. The more illicit drugs people are consuming, the harder it is already on the body. And so if you add something else that's attacking the immune system and and the body, it's both and. I mean, we've lost a couple of people recently, even though there were no physical or outward signs of OD, you know, from paraphernalia, you know, these were our participants. So until we hear different from the ME, which I just got a memo this morning, which, which states that to that effect, that the numbers that are being reported from EMS versus uh, the ME's office are different. The ME's numbers are higher. So it, it actually validates our fears that people are, you know, ODing and, and we're not catching it. Now, for those people who are, who are using drugs and trying to isolate themselves, if they can isolate themselves, what are some things that you're telling them to do to reduce their... That's the danger. (laughs) It goes against everything that we're telling them. We tell people don't use alone. And if you are, let someone know. And and this is one of the, the difficulties in this is that some of the things that work for, you know, COVID are actually more dangerous for our using populations. So there's a mixed message. Uh, and, and all we can do there is, you know, is tell people, listen, make sure someone knows. I mean, yeah, it's challenging at best. Hmm. When you say that the lifeblood of harm reduction practice is to meet folks where they're at, what does that mean? The necessity, outward need, and when people reach out are generally inopportune times. So we're in the midst of, and and I'm going just straight to the opioid side, we are still in the midst of an epidemic, unlike anything we've ever known there. And, and now you add a pandemic on top of it. Again, unlike anything we've ever addressed, but yet and still, it's not just business as usual, but services have in some cases disappeared to this population. And in an effort to keep people safe. So while you have to understand it on one end, 
the need hasn't gone away. The lifeblood of harm reduction is to meet people. So, you know, hence us taking it to the street. If they can't get to us, then we've got to get to them because they're still going to use. They are still going to use. And you may say, well, it's a moral thing and, you know, them. If they can't get, you know, if they're not going to, you, you can't, you know, but as a harm reductionist, it's still my job to meet people where they are in their own space and time. And if that means to catch them walking down the street, you know, while they're going to cop, then, then that's what we have to do. If you could wave a magic wand right now and have any one resource, what would that resource be? Good question. Good question. The first thing that comes to my, mouth, my mind, for whatever reason, is the PPE, because that's uh, right now just the hardest thing to make sure people had ways to uh, to stay safe there. But I thought for a minute that maybe our populations were hearing the messaging and, and the warnings and beginning to shelter in. But I think it might have just been a you know, a couple of cold days because today is a beautiful day out there. And, and once again, I see people back in, in the same or similar places uh, gathering, you know, in communal settings as they do without without the proper protection, protective wear. One of the biggest uh, asks that we have right now from our populations are for masks. And it's the one thing I don't have. So when people are at home making masks from scratch with their sewing machines, are those the kind of masks that would help your population? And and I'll take socks that will fit over your head if you got them. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> we're going to cut up your old shirts and give them to us. <laughs> Literally, I, I get three here, two there, five here. Uh, yesterday was the first day I got a, an unopened package from another agency, a package of 10. When I think about the work that you do, I think that you are especially equipped for a pandemic. You are skilled at navigating risk. You are really, really good at redistributing resources and you're really good at connecting with community. Since this is kind of the work you've been doing this whole time, but now it's all on overdrive, do you feel like this work you've been doing this whole time has equipped you for now? Well, um, you know, I cannot help it. You know, this weekend, by all means, everybody is hunkering in, is, you know, it's chilly. I had five van loads of sandwiches and a truckload of syringes and other supplies. And I'm out there and I'm, you know, I'm surprised I didn't catch cold from that sitting on the back of my van, just making sure, riding around, letting people see those flags on that vehicle and passing out as many sandwiches and breakfast and, and bags and things that people need. Because once they associate the two together, you know, they have needs and here's a vehicle that may fill them. Then they look, then they know, then they tell people. I got three people this weekend into treatment. One came when I was on my way back from the grocery store going to cook my dinner. And he said, Mark, I'm ready to go. And I'm like, dude, now? <laughs> you know, 
that's that meeting people where they are that can become a pain in the but the fulfillment on the other side and what would haunt me to death on the other side is had something happened to him and I'd went on to make that chili had I not went and got him in treatment. And forgive my words, you'll probably have to beep some of that out, I'm sure. <laughs> but, uh, and people, you know, across the country say, Mark, are you staying safe? Are you staying safe? To the best of my ability. Can I look back and see where I've messed up 80 times? Heck yeah. But, you know, if you look to trace your steps and see if everything you're doing, you know, this is stressful enough. I'm, I've got a temperature reader in my, in my backpack. If I cough, here I go, beep, you know, and I'm checking to see where my temperature is. If, you know, if, if, if I cough, now I'm holding my breath for 10 seconds, you know, to see if I'm okay. So I'm doing all these other things to see if I'm symptomatic uh, in the course of a day. And it's like, you know. If it is, it is. I'm going to continue to, to stay safe and still provide the services that we can for the people we serve. Now, I've met you before. I went to one of your trainings for Narcan, and uh, you are, <laughs> you clearly are built for this work. Like, not only it seems like you are wired this way, but you're also, you've developed the skills of speaking plainly and directly and with humor uh, and affection often. And when I met you that time, I was just really deeply impressed and surprised and informed when I left. And I liked you, and you seemed fulfilled. Now, this is a stressful time for everybody, and I wonder how you are and if you feel changed. Um, I have a saying uh, to whom much is given, much is required. We just have to, uh, we got to get through this, you know, whatever means, whatever that means. Um, This is, this is what we were here for. This is what we were prepared for, for this work, you know, you said it, um, this is what we do. The work continues. We're going to try and find ways and means to help keep people safe, make them safer in whatever it is they're doing. It's not to judge what they're doing, how they're doing, or who they're doing it with. It's just to provide means and methods by which they can stay safer and hopefully stay alive while they navigate, you know, some very uncertain times. And that message really carries out farther now because people who may have been on the borderline and their work was the thing that kept them from teetering into uh, or, or from chaotic use will now enter these realms. So we have to be prepared for all of the other adverse effects and things that are going to happen as a result of all this isolation. And if they are reusing uh, syringes, you know, some of the, the uh, again, the adverse effects, and even if they are, you know, by themselves, 
using the same needle 10 times over when we know after the second time that needle burns. So, I mean, there's just so, so many different things that we have to make sure we're supporting these individuals and, and, and doing our best to help them stay safe in some really uncertain times uh, and that we keep our doors open and keep lifelines available. So that's, that's our job. That's what we're challenged to do and uh, what we're going to do. Well, Mark Jenkins, Executive Director of Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition, thank you so much for talking to me. <laughs> thank you. After I talked with Mark, I connected him with Katrina Orsini. She's the founder of Hartford Fashion Week, and on Facebook, she was connecting people who needed masks with designers who make masks. So it happened like this. She was raising money to fund the production of face shields and gowns, and the Waterbury Republican American did an article about it. The day after the article ran, Katrina wakes up to an email inbox bursting with requests for face masks, the kind you see so many people wearing out and about lately. She raised money and is still raising money to pay over 30 local fashion designers to make as many masks as they can at $10 a mask. That covers materials, labor, and, when applicable, shipping. But for Mark's 100 mask order, she was able to hand deliver them. And I I had to ask what that was like. It was a Sunday afternoon. Mark met me right at his office. Uh, We were both wearing our own masks. And uh, I just handed him, you know, the bag of 100 masks. I showed him how the filter pockets inside the masks work. I explained to him that there are different colors so that folks who are couples can kind of tell there's a part. It's not really recommended to be sharing masks. Um, And I told him how, you know, you wash them. They're reusable. If you take care of them, they'll last you through the pandemic, which God willing, we'll be over soon. <laughs> and that's it. How much money have you raised so far to keep this going? Uh, we are at around $1,500 right now. And we've put out three large quantity orders. We're working on two more at the moment. How are you doing? Like, how is this for you? Because you could also be just chilling out and watching Netflix and going for walks, but there's something else going on if you're really, it's not fun raising money. It really is not fun raising money. And it's scary to go out in the world for anybody. So why are you doing this? What is this like for you? I had a sports injury a couple months ago. Um, So I'm actually relearning to walk right now. So I don't have the option of doing much else at the moment I can't like go for a run to take my frustration out or anything like that um so I felt actually quite paralyzed and like unable to contribute to this or my mental health really in any way so when our inbox filled up with people in need like it became very clear what needed to happen and how I best could contribute I'm not the world's best seller but I'm a pretty good organizer of connecting people and of putting things where they need to be. So I feel like that's how my skills were best applied here. And to be honest, like fundraising is not easy, but we're using a Venmo account. So if I'm just like having a crap day, which happens often now as everyone obviously does, and I get like a Venmo for $10, my phone lights up. It's like a really great mood booster. It's great morale. So it's actually not been that bad. What's the Venmo handle? It's at Hartford Fashion Week. Nice. Well, we talked about everything I wanted to talk about, but I'm sure my periphery is limited. So is there anything that I I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure you say? 
Yeah, there's one thing that I hope kind of we can come out of this with a better better view on, and that's the people who are sewing and the textile workers, maybe in your community or just on the larger scale. Uh, we have globally just a really bad issue with fast fashion, which is just kind of this turnover of trends and clothing being put out on a manufactured scale that is extremely cheap honestly it's it's too cheap so if you're paying 10 or 20 dollars for a t-shirt for example someone's being extremely exploited and i hope that this pandemic and this urgent need for masks and actually having to come in contact with people in your community who are the sewers and the makers will make you realize that this is a skill right this is not unskilled labor as it's called otherwise everyone would be making their own masks this is something that is in demand and it should be paid properly We've obviously seen the issues um, across the world when factories collapse, people are trapped inside, um, and that's really the only time we hear about it. But it's every single day that these people's labor is being exploited. So if you come out of here with one thing, after you get your mask, just know that someone made it and it's someone's labor that's worth valuing. That was Katrina Orsini, founder of Hartford Fashion Week. Check them out at www.hartford.fashion. After the break, if you had COVID-19 and you were being discharged from a long hospital stay, what song would you want playing over the loudspeakers as you exited the building? We'll hear how hospitals are providing a powerful soundtrack for patients who make it home. Plus, you'll hear from an eight-year-old from Stafford who's passing the time by hosting a live stream about rocks. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Be right back. This is us in the time of coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is the third segment of the show, the C segment, as we like to call it. And from now on, it'll be considered the comfort segment. As always, we'll wrap up with a child's perspective. But before that, I want you to hear about how some hospitals are using music to celebrate the successful release of a recovering COVID-19 patient. Last weekend, Gaylord Specialty Healthcare in Wallingford posted a video on their Facebook page. It's of Jay Bielkowski. He's a retired state trooper who worked as a security guard at Hartford Hospital, and he was the first patient Gaylord accepted for treatment with a COVID-19 diagnosis. He went from being in dire straits on a ventilator to being discharged from the hospital one month later in a lobby full of healthcare workers and his family cheering their faces off to the tune of Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And when I saw this video... I wept. I I ugly cried. And I asked Jay if he'd be up for an interview. He declined. I imagine he could use all the rest he could get. But he said, quote, these three caregivers are some of my favorite people on earth, and they can tell my story for me. So meet his physical therapist, Sarah Carpenter, his occupational therapist, Katie Zimarelli, and his Dr. Megan Panico. I asked Dr. Panico why they chose that song. People are surviving, people are getting better. And I think that that song really emulates um, what we are all thinking and hopefully kind of motivates the patients to keep trying. Um, There's other COVID positive patients here that now know why that song is going off and they all heard it um, and they they want it to be their turn and and it will be. Now, Sarah, what what does it say to the patients who are there struggling with COVID-19 when they hear 
Don't Stop Believing over the loudspeakers, and everybody knows what that means. What does that say to the patients there? That's a big thing to be able to tell people that otherwise aren't allowed to leave their room and are only really getting information from, you know, the TV that they're sitting in front of. So it's a lot of scary stuff right now. So to be able to have personal stories and examples of people walking right through it and and getting home is is a really big thing. And Katie, what was it like for you when Jay was released back into the world with Don't Stop Believing playing? Um, so I'm going to try not to cry because I'm honestly now. Okay, I've cried for a week now. <laughs> so on every news station out there. <laughs> having him come in and having him be absolutely dependent with every single aspect of his care to then being able to see him literally stand up from that wheelchair and walk straight to his family to give his family a hug. That feeling is just unexplainable. That was his goal. He said, I just can't wait to give my, my daughter and my wife a hug. And his whole motto was, you know, determination. I I can do this. I can't stop. I have to believe. And everything all together put everything in perspective of, yeah, I can do this. If I set my foot, you know, one foot in front of the other and, and I have that determination to do it, I can do it. I can get through that. So to see it from, you know, whole, that full circle is a miraculous feeling knowing, you know, we all helped touch someone's life and we all helped get this you know, person back on their feet and and get them their lives back again is an amazing feeling. Dr. Panico, when when I saw this video, I was a total puddle on the floor and I don't even know anybody involved. And so what do you think this sight of Jay leaving the hospital to this soundtrack, what is that saying to the rest of us? To be able to tell people that people are getting better and they're scared. Um, My eight-year-old asks me, Every day, am I going to come home today? Are you going to die from this? And I can tell her, you know, people are getting better. Look, you know, look at Jay. You know, she thinks Jay is her friend now. She asks about him. Um, You know, look at those people. Those are the people that that's the reason that mommy's going to work is that, you know, these are the people that, you know, we want to save and we want to get home to their families so they can be with their children or their grandchildren. And these patients are giving us the hope um, that this is going to happen from more and more people. You were talking about how that song, Don't Stop Believing" is so powerful and so perfect for this because it truly is a factor in someone getting better is their their faith and their fight. And at the same time, you you know that there are people who had that same faith and who had that same fight and they didn't survive this. And so I want to make sure that we don't, that it's not just about your fight to survive. It's also- Yeah, I think, you know, it has been horrible. We've lost more people than, you know, in a short period of time than any of us, I think, have ever experienced in our lives, should experience in our lives. And, you know, as a society, I would hope that, you know, don't stop believing means more than just the individual patient. Like, it should mean as a society, like, let's still believe in each other. Let's still be there for each other. There is hope. There is going to be another side of this that we can all come out stronger. Um, There's a lot of bad happening right now and a lot of scary, but there's also a lot of amazing things and people that make me believe in this world and make me believe in the future for my daughter. 
that are happening on a daily basis. I see people working together that I never would have imagined working together, competitors working together, you know, different hospitals collaborating together, uh, different disciplines collaborating together. Um, people are really one team right now. And so it's not just about the individual patient about believing in that, but I think it should be about believing in our healthcare system, believing in the people that are taking care of your loved ones when you can't be there and believing that, you know, we all will come out of the stronger at some point in time. That was Dr. Megan Panico, pulmonary and critical care physician, physical therapist Sarah Carpenter, and occupational therapist Katie Zimmerelli. Here's the audio from the clip Gaylord Specialty Healthcare posted on their webpage. The first cheer you'll hear from the healthcare workers lining the lobby is when Jay is rolled out in a wheelchair toward his waiting wife and daughter. And the following one is him standing up, wrapping his arms around him. Once you wipe your eyes and then wash your hands, you have to see this video. Look up Gaylord Specialty Healthcare on Facebook. And while you're online, there were two interviews I had featuring people who work at hospitals that are using music to discharge their patients, and it didn't fit into the timing of the show. I know you'll love these stories, so check it out at ctpublic.org slash us. Finally, as always, we close out with a kid, Clara from Stafford, Connecticut, She's eight years old, and I asked her how she's dealing with all this pandemic stuff. It's not my favorite thing last time, was it? Okay. What are you doing to pass the time? I do my live streams. Tell me more about your live streams. This came up on one day that somebody uh, said it'd be nice to live stream about something that I was having fun with. So I live streamed about that, and I just went with different topics, and it became an everyday thing. So it's like you have your own show. Mm-hmm. What's been something you've talked about on your live stream that really got you excited? I think that might have been rocks. <laughs> Wait, it might have been what? Rocks. Tell me more. One of the things we did in my live stream, we were uh, talking about rocks, because our rock tumbler was going, and we were... Polishing a rock. So whenever we do a live stream, we check the rocks and show the rocks. Today we actually did one where we compared raw rocks to polished rocks. What's some of the differences between raw rocks and polished rocks? The raw rocks are a lot more pointier, more angled, and they're less shiny. Do you have a favorite rock? Not really. So you're an equal opportunity rock lover. Yeah. <laughs> I got more questions. What do you miss doing the most right now that you can't do anymore? That might be eating fast food. <laughs> <laughs> what's your favorite what's your favorite fast food restaurant? I think that would be Wendy's. Wendy's? What do you order at Wendy's? 
Usually I have chicken nuggets with sweet and sour sauce and fries, and sometimes mom will get me a frosty for after. Do you ever dip your fries in the frosty? No. Oh, you should try it sometime. No. I'm telling you, it doesn't seem like it'll work, but the salty and the sweet, oh, it's so good. Soon. (laughs) All right. If you were in charge of the whole world, and the whole world is kind of crazy right now. I mean, it's always usually crazy, and it'll probably always be some kind of crazy, but right now it's a special kind of crazy. So if you could be in charge of the world and change something about the way that we are behaving. What would you have everybody change? Whenever I go on walks, sometimes I see trash, cups, other kinds of pollution. I think I'd stop that. Hmm. So because times are weird and people are stressed out, I'm wondering, do you know any jokes? Okay. What's orange and sounds like a parrot? What's orange and sounds like a parrot? I don't know what. A parrot. (laughs) It took me a second. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one, Clara. Thank you so much for talking to me and, and for all of your words of wisdom. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. That was eight year old Clara from Stafford, Connecticut. Telling kids what's going on is important. It's really important, but so is listening to them. I encourage you to listen to the kids in your life. And if you know a child who has a lot to say, send them my way. Story ideas are welcome too. You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Us in the Time of Coronavirus was produced by me and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. The theme music is called This Is the Song by Punch Brothers. You can find more information and subscribe to the podcast at ctpublic.org slash us. Till next time, stay safe, wash your hands, and may tomorrow be a better day. These are tough times.